Good morning, my name is Rob Heron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're continuing our study on the Gospel of John. The first half of the book of John is primarily signs. It's characterized by signs, miracles, healings that point to who Jesus is, Son of God, the Word of God made flesh. And while that is the foundation here in chapter 13, John pivots to focus on Jesus' last night with his disciples before the cross. Specifically here, Jesus is instructing them on the nature, the heart, what he has come to do, and the life of love that he invites them into. If you would, read with me John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is truth. We ask that your Holy Spirit would powerfully apply it to us so that we may lay it up in our hearts and live it out to your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, I was shopping at Walmart because I have good taste, and I pulled up to the Walmart parking lot, and I got out of my car, and immediately as I was getting out, an older couple, married couple, walked up to me. And the husband asked me if he could borrow a moment of my time, and I said, sure, and I immediately internally asked, or wondered, do I have cash on hand? How much do I have? The husband proceeded to begin his story telling me about where they're coming from. They seemed sincere. He seemed sincere. And it seemed like he was moving toward an an ask for money, an ask for financial help. Internally, when when I'm approached by people in these situations, two things happen. One, I tend to just want to go about my business. After all, I'm a busy man. I've got a shop in Walmart. I've got things to do. But secondly, I feel uneasy uncomfortable when I'm confronted with someone that is desperately needy. 
So I looked for the first opportunity to interject, waited for him to pause or take a breath, and I told him, you can have this bag of change that I have in my car. It's about $3. But I gave it to them, and they said, God bless you. And I walked toward Walmart feeling like I had done my duty to love these needy people. After 15 minutes of consumeristic bliss in Walmart, I walk back out of the parking lot, and I see this couple, and they are still walking over to cars that are parked close to mine and asking them, I presume, for, for help. I didn't think they were going to ask me again for help if I walked toward them. I didn't think they were going to stop me and, and tell me their story again, but I still took a circular route back to my car so that I wouldn't have to engage them. Why? For me, it's because they were needy. They were needy. And I recoiled from it. Their neediness, it felt icky, felt invasive. I thought to myself, I have loved these people, I've done my duty toward them, but I hadn't really loved them at all. I hadn't loved them at all. Because it confronted with their neediness, I just wanted to run away. To be clear, I don't tell this story because I'm going to give counsel about how you should handle these kinds of situations when people ask for financial help. That's not my point. This is a personal point. I walked away from them because their neediness felt like a plague to me. And you know why? Because I'm not that needy, right? I'm not that needy. I didn't like it. Again, it felt foreign and invasive. I recoiled from their neediness. This is personal to me, but I imagine you are similar to me. You're not that different from me. You and I have a tendency to think that we love needy people at least pretty well, according to our standard. We may give to the needy. We may pray for the needy. When our friends ask for help, they have needs. We give to them. We help them. But the reality is that so often when we are confronted with desperate, thick neediness, we recoil. We want to just move away from it, run away from it. And why? Because we're not that needy. Not that needy. The truth is, though, if I'm not that needy, then I haven't fully realized how I have been loved in my neediness. And if I don't fully realize how I have been loved in my neediness, then I will not love according to the only standard that matters. God's love. He who has been loved little, loves little. The truth of John 13, 1-17, here is is the truth of true love, God's love. And ultimately what we're going to see is this, that those who are washed by Jesus love as he loves. Those who are washed by Jesus love as he loves. And I want to unfold this, what this means by looking at the foot washing here in in John 13 and looking at three aspects of it. The heart of the washing, the need for the washing, and the model of the washing. The heart, the need, and the model. First, what is the heart of this washing? Jesus has come here to the end of his time with the disciples before the cross. The hour has come, the hour of his death. And John tells us in verse 1, you can look there, that Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And here at the end, John emphasizes that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The end here can mean the end of a period of time, or it can mean to the highest degree. Probably both are implied here. So John is saying, from beginning to end, Jesus loved his disciples perfectly. Perfectly. As much as he possibly could have. How does he display that? You look in verses 4 and 5. It says that he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, he took a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. This was absolutely stunning, outrageously shocking. Because in the ancient world, foot washing was the action of a slave. It was an action fit for that rank. Someone that has uh, studied, uh, a commentator has studied foot washing extensively, said that what Jesus does here is unrivaled in antiquity or in the ancient world. Because Jesus is a superior washing the feet of inferiors. And first, I mean, we can relate to why this might be a menial task, foot washing. Our feet aren't that beautiful most of the time. But in the ancient world, in Jerusalem, the disciples' feet would have gotten grimy, dusty, dirty. And here, Jesus, their superior, is stooping, rising to serve them, to take the form of a slave or servant and wiping off the dust and the grime and the dirt. But he's more than a superior. That's John's point here in verse 3. He says that Jesus knows that the, he knew that the Father had given him all things. Jesus needs nothing, needing nothing, owning everything. He rises to take the form of a servant, to wash the feet of his beloved, to even wash the feet of his betrayer, Judas. This is true love. This is what love looks like. The one without need, having all, he takes the form of a suffering servant. Which leads us to, to recognize that what's happening here, this is an amazing action, but it's, it's also a symbolic picture of the ultimate love, the cross. That Jesus would stoop to wash the grimiest and the dustiest of, of needs, the defilement of sin, The foot washing paints a picture of us for how Jesus loved his own and loves his own to the end. To the end of his life, to death and to the highest degree. That he washes our sin through his suffering death. That is true love. When we're in a culture, and I'm a part of it, you're a part of it, that touts love as the greatest virtue. We even talk as though we love more and better than old cultures, ancient cultures, like the one here in John. But what is our definition of love? Whatever the precise definition is, we live in a culture, I'm a part of it, you're a part of it, that has made love in so many ways a matter of affirming worth. Affirming worth that is already there. And we live in a a culture where love is given on the basis of swipe ability. The dating apps give us the power to swipe right to people that are worthy of us and to swipe left to those who aren't. It's not just in dating apps, but the assumption is that love is not about what I need. It's about you. It's about you need to love me. Are you worthy of me? That is what love is all about. We may not use dating apps, but we are mistaken if we don't think this has affected us. That the swipe effect 
Of course, it has affected, deeply impacted the way that we choose which community groups are worthy of my presence. Which friends live up to my standard of excellence? Which people deserve my time? The swipe effect is in our hearts. We assume love is all about you need me, I don't need you. Are you worthy of me? And if you are, then love me, serve me. But if I'm not needy, then God should love me. Maybe God even needs to love me. And this might sound like, uh, uh, in some ways, a good thing this, to our self-affirming ears. And even Christianity teaches that all of us are made in God's image. And so we have ingrained dignity and worth, but what it misses is neediness. It misses neediness. Then we will miss the truth about what God's love actually is. That he meets us in our desperate need and not on the basis of worth. Not on the basis of worth. The God reaches the unlovably needy with his love to wash them with his love. He loves the unlovably needy to death. And you and I aren't worthy of this. We don't deserve it. We deserve the opposite. And yet God's perfect love that washes you, it's yours in Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to merit it or live up to it, be worthy of it. And yet it's yours. And not in some distant way, but as, as near as Jesus is to their feet here. He is that much nearer to our neediness. As the song says, there's nothing too dirty. Jesus meets us in our desperate neediness out of the sheer stores of grace in Jesus' heart for sinners. We have to see that. We will miss everything if we don't see that this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at. It's the heart of true love. He washes us, unworthy people, with his love. Simply put, he loves you because he loves you. So that's the first thing. This is the heart of the washing. But secondly, we need to see the need for the washing. As Jesus moves through the room, washing the disciples' feet, apparently is apparently the first and the only to speak up. And you can look in verse 6. He asks, Lord, do you wash my feet? Understandably, Peter is confused. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will after. Presumably after the resurrection. But Peter's not done. Classic Peter. He amps up his objection in verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. He recoils from what Jesus is doing. His Lord, his master, serve him like a slave. Never, never will you do this. He literally says, never unto eternity will you wash my feet. And Jesus lovingly clarifies what he misses there in verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, in other words, you will not be with me in eternity. So Peter flips it around. He flips the response in verse 9. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. you got to love Peter because he can, in a matter of seconds, go from, you shall never wash me to wash everything in really 10 seconds. Peter may be thinking that Jesus is talking about cleanliness cleanness or purity under the law of Moses. He's like, okay, I get it. If the water in that basin is going to determine my eternal destiny, then don't forget to get behind the ears, Jesus. That seems to be what he's getting at. Beloved Peter, he doesn't quite get it. Jesus again lovingly clarifies in verse 10 what might at first sound confusing. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, 
but is completely clean, and you are clean. Jesus' comment is it's likely operating on two symbolic levels. The first one is that if you are already washed by me, you are totally clean. Jesus, if I, uh, Peter, if I wash you, you are totally clean. But on the second level, he says, your feet still need to be washed. It's part of you that needs to be washed. If we uh, take a shower and then we go out and we muddy our feet out and in, in the uh, bare feet out in the lawn, we come back in, you don't need to take another shower, but you do need to wash your feet. And that seems to be Jesus' point here. You are totally clean and you need your feet washed. You have a perpetual need. I've cleaned you once for all because you belong to me, cleaned you by my death, but you will always need my washing. You will always need to be washed by my love. You'll never escape it. And all this highlights and points to Peter's need for the washing Jesus provides, and it's total, but it's also personal. It's not abstract. It's not about bare ritual because Judas received the same outer washing, but he was not clean. This total is personal and it's perpetual. It's ongoing. And we, when we see that what Jesus is saying about Peter applies to me and to you, we will, at least at first, recoil. In the two, uh, 2012 film Amour, it's a French film, a French couple are sitting at breakfast when Anne, the wife, suffers a stroke. An elderly couple. And throughout the film, Anne begins, after her stroke, begins to lose faculties. Um, she begins to lose function, her body, her memory, her personal vulnerable functions. And as she becomes increasingly needy, her husband, Georges, has to increasingly care for her. He has to help feed her, help her get to and out of the bathroom. And the film's title translates in English to love. And the film is about what love really looks like when someone we love is suffering in a starkly needy way. And the picture of this husband helping his wife in and out of the bathroom is a powerful picture of love. But that doesn't make it any less uncomfortable. One point in the movie when, when Anne, before she has lost the power of speech, she asks her husband, why should I inflict this on you? Why should I go on inflicting this on you? What's happening here is, is a horror, not because of the pain physically, but because she is more and more desperately needy in the hands of someone she loves. I may be comfortable needing Jesus in some ways, but not to the extent that Jesus is talking about here. I'm comfortable needing Jesus like I need my wife to help me cook dinner but not in the way that I would need help getting into the bathroom and out of the bathroom. And that's more like the neediness that Jesus is talking about here, except we're far needier. And that is uncomfortable. Because it means that we are totally needy. Just like Peter, there is no self-sufficiency. We have no faculty to deal with our greatest need, the removal of our sin. We have no way to do that. We can't clean ourselves. But it's also personal. We're not needy in some abstract, everybody's needy sort of way. No, I need Jesus to wash my feet once for all and then forever. It's personal. He deals with my own grime, the dust that's covering me once for all, but then also daily, 
And then it's perpetual. I never get away from this neediness. In fact, it's meant to characterize my daily life, this neediness. And not only in this life when sin remains, but in eternity. Jesus is saying it's a good thing. You will always need to be washed by my love. Always. And that could seem like icky. But the good news is this. Jesus never tires of washing you with his love. He never tires of it. Yes, your sin was inflicted upon him at the cross, but you do not afflict Jesus with your neediness. He delights to wash you with his love, with his delight over you. That his perfect love, self-giving, humbling, sacrificial, stooping love is perfectly fit, perfectly matched for your desperate neediness. It's a perfect fit. And so he delights eternally to wash you with his love. That's the neediness we have. So we've seen the heart of the washing, the need for it. And finally, we need to see what is the model of this washing. And what Jesus is doing through the symbolic act of the foot washing, it entails a response. That we must respond by confessing our neediness. And I will say, if you want a takeaway from the sermon that you can leave with, it's this. Thank God for your neediness. Rejoice in your neediness. For in it, you know the perfect love of God in Christ. But there's also another level that we respond. We're to respond to the model of love that Jesus gives. And after returning to his place at the table, you can look at verse 12. And Jesus asked them, do you understand what I've done to you? If they truly understand what Jesus has done for them through this symbolic act, they will live differently. More than that, they will love differently. He clarifies for them in verse 15. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The love that the foot washing pictures, perfectly pictures, but that is perfected at the cross Love that operates according to the principle of grace, not on worthiness. That doesn't make rank the defining factor for how one serves. This love is modeled by Jesus for his disciples to follow, to live out. And to be clear, obviously, this doesn't mean that Jesus' followers wash each other's sins. That's not the point. But this, Jesus is explicit here. This is the model for how you are to live, how you are to love. If you draw water from a well to give to other people, you're not being the well. But the water you give them, it should taste like the water from the well. We love in the same way Jesus has loved us because he is our well. He is our source. We draw from the well of his love. And if we do this, Jesus tells them in verse 17, Blessed are you if you do these things that you know. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Preacher named Brian Habig has pointed out that when we we read verse 17, we want Jesus to say, If you know these things, blessed are you if you know them. But the reality is that if we know our neediness, and we know how Jesus has washed us with his love in our neediness, how he continues to love us in our neediness, then we will love as he loves. 
Those who are washed by Jesus love as he loves. They do as he does. And in in doing this, Jesus says you are blessed. We are blessed with even greater knowledge of God's love for us as we see it lived out in our midst. Tertullian, who was a third century church father, he wrote about how the early Christians cared for the sick, for widows and orphans, the way they showed hospitality to one another, especially those in need. And when non-Christians saw the way that the church cared for the needy in their midst, Tertullian says, they marveled and said, see how they love. See how they love. The early Christians were just living out the model of the foot washing, which they knew pointed to the ultimate love of the cross. The only other place after this event that foot washing is mentioned is in 1 Timothy 5, and Paul commends a woman for washing the feet of the saints. It's very unlikely that he meant there was a woman going around door to door with a bucket of water washing people's feet. If you're thinking about starting a foot-washing ministry in response to the sermon, I would at least hesitate. I would say it's a bad idea. (laughs) It might get awkward. No, of course, that's not Paul's point. He's commending this woman because she is modeling her life and love after the love of Jesus that has washed her. The person who washes others' feet loves as Jesus has loved her. That is true love. And it's, some, it's the love that we, that we we'll receive and it washes over us and then it transforms us to love one another differently. But how are we to, mo- to live out this model that Jesus gives us? How are we to do that? And this might seem against point, but one of the first things that comes to mind is that we must be needy before one another. We must live in neediness before one another. I don't mean being totally dependent on each other and not making demands of each other, but acknowledging your desperate need for Jesus publicly. We need to do that. That is what it means, base level, to love one another. That I, on my own, I have no love in myself to offer you, but only the love that I draw from the well of Jesus' love that washes me in my desperate neediness. Which means I can't love you if I continually act like I don't need anyone. I can't love you if I'm self-sufficient. One of the best ways I can love this community is to admit how desperately needy I am. Both in the once-for-all act that saved me, but every moment of every day I need Jesus and so do you. But also, from that point, we love the people that Jesus loves. We make different decisions as to where we spend our time and who gets our attention. Again, the the love that I give is the same love I have received that has washed over me. That I must love no longer on the principle of attractiveness, likability, or perceived worth. That if I have been washed in my neediness, there is no one who is beneath me, ultimately. That ultimately no one is more or less worthy of my time. This is the love of God. That it doesn't make distinctions on likability, attractiveness, or perceived worth, but purely out of grace. And we were to love also in the way that Jesus has loved us. In the way, 
That if Jesus, our master, was willing to do the act of a slave to love us, then we must do likewise. That no longer can we make decisions about how we're going to serve, how we're going to love on the basis of rank or position. Yes, we all have different roles, different spheres of influence, but I can't say, I'm a pastor, I don't pick up trash at the church, that's for deacons. If I say that, what I'm missing, not only is that my desperate neediness uh, isn't reflected in that, but also what I'm missing is that because I have been washed by Jesus' love, it is my blessing. I am blessed to pick up trash at this church. I am blessed to work in the nursery or talk to people that are outside of my age group. And if I've been washed by Jesus' love, I can't say, I don't clean the bathroom, that's my wife's job. What I'm missing there is a lot. At this point, I'm just preaching to myself. What I'm missing there is that because I am washed with Jesus' love, that he stoops to take on the form of a suffering servant to wash my desperate need. This is my blessing. I am blessed to clean the bathroom. Yes, my wife and I have conversations about who does what in household chores, but nothing is beneath me. This isn't beneath me anymore. I am blessed in doing this. And in fact, honestly, if I want to love the way Jesus loves, I think cleaning the bathroom is a good place to start. How are we going to do this? How are we going to love this way? It would be in some ways easy if the answer was just, let's have a foot washing ceremony. where We all literally wash one another's feet. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. That there's value in that. It's a symbolic, powerful picture. But it's a lot easier to do that than the day in, day out, moving toward people and their neediness. When you're confronted with someone's neediness or someone who is desperately needy, yes, to give financially, give practically, of course that, but also to listen, to spend time with them, to walk alongside them, to know them, to let them know you, and to get close enough that their neediness touches you. Touches you enough that it actually makes you realize and remember your own desperate neediness before the cross and cry out, wash me, Savior, or I die. To get that close. And that cry only hits home because at the cross, Jesus' feet were not washed, they were pierced. That at the cross... It wasn't waves of loving mercy that poured over Jesus, but it was the waves of just wrath poured out upon my sin, your sin. That at the cross, Jesus Jesus washed something way bigger than your feet, yourself. He washed you at the cross to love you. And this is the good news, friends. Because he loves you, he did this because he loves you. And if you've been washed by Jesus, we must love as he loves. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are near to us. And you came near to us through the incarnation. And in all of Jesus' life, he was moving toward this moment when he would give a picture of his love summed up in the cross. And I pray that this love would, in in a fresh way, wash over us. And if we have not received it, that it would take root and make us new. So that we would love you in response to your grace and love one another in a new way that sets us free because you have loved us.
ask this in your name. Amen.